This is Black Millennial Money. This is Black Millennial Money, where we talk about how you can make more money, keep more money, invest your money, and spend your money on the finer things in life, all from a Black Millennial perspective. I'm your host, Joseph Osu, and today we have another illustrious guest in the house. His name is Philip Uday, and he's from Food Vitamin Energy. But before we get into all of that, the regular listeners know what's about to happen. If you haven't liked, subscribed, and shared with everyone in your phone book, what are you waiting for? Now is the time to do it. We're on a mission to reach a million people around the world with life-changing financial information, and you can be part of that movement. Send it to your friends, send it to your auntie, send it to your cousins, send it to everyone who you think may benefit from a little bit of this information we share every single week. And if you want to take your contribution to our mission a little bit further, now is the time to join our Patreon. If you head over to blackmillennialmoney.com and click the Patreon link, you find all the details there. But essentially, it's your opportunity to support the podcast financially from as little as £3 a month to help us continue the work that we do and keep pushing this financial wisdom, this financial knowledge out into the community even further. And for those of you who want additional benefits, we added another show. So Dilemmas on a Sunday, live every Sunday at 11.30. We go live answering your questions and your dilemmas. If you want to be featured, send us your questions through our Instagram page, which is BMM Global, or directly through the Black Millennial Money website. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you get your questions answered faster, you get them answered directly, and they also get featured on Dilemmas on a Sunday. So if you want to be part of that, every Sunday, 11.30 a.m., on YouTube for a whole hour, sharing wisdom, sharing knowledge as a community and helping people every single Sunday. Now, I told you we had a luscious guest in the house and today we're talking about making money from a food and beverage businesses. That's food and drinks. If you have, if you want to start a food and drink business, this is one of the episodes that you really, really need to lock into. This is going to be a pen and paper episode. So if you haven't got one, Pause and get the pen and paper right now because you're going to watch this back a few times. But just to give you some perspective on who we have in the house, I told you his name is Philip Uday and he's the CEO and founder of Food Vitamin Energy, which makes a 100% natural energy drink. It's not like those other ones which which have animals and monsters on the front who will give you a big rush and then a big crash. Food energy is nothing like that. It's a type of product that's all natural that you're not going to get any feedback from down the line other than positivity. In addition to that, they've sold in excess of 200,000 cans in a little over in a short period of time. They've only been, they've only really been trading for a short period of time. They've gone from zero to 200,000 cans in a real short space of time. He has a background in international development, social entrepreneurship, and local government. Mr. Philip Uday, you are our illustrious guest this week. I hope you brought some food with you. Thank you. How are you doing? Thank you so much. Thank you. I always have a can, always have a can within <laughs> arm's reach. Uh, just even just on a product placement basis, it's always, it's always there. But yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. Really appreciate it. I feel like someone should applaud. Are you going to add the applause after? Is there like a, an applause button you can press? You know, we did that in the early episodes and then decided it sounded a little bit cheesy. So uh, the applause is now mental, but you know it's there. Okay, you know it's there. okay, okay, okay. Well, at least you can drop a bomb then if no applause. Then at least the bomb. We'll, we'll think about bombs. We'll think about bombs in the okay, future. After, right. after every sentence, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> that works, that works. So yeah, okay. we know... We know what the CV says. We know you're a CEO. We know you're a founder. We know you're 200,000 cans sold. But who is, who is Philip Uday? What are the three things we should know about you? Okay, well, I'm a Londoner. 
Um, been in London all my life. Um, I'm a father. Um, I'm a husband. Um, just a note on that: I have a four-year-old who is basically the same age as my business. Um, anybody thinking about starting a brand new business and having a brand new child, honestly, don't do it. It's 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 a big challenge. It's a big challenge, and um, it's it's an amazing one, an exciting one, um, but very challenging. And um, what did I? What else can I say? I was going to say my favorite food is akara. I know I'm talking to my Igbo brother, um, Joseph Mosu. I'm talking to my Igbo brother. He knows what the akara is. That akara and fried yam, but you have to get it from Lagos. You know, you have to get it. That that real street food. Um, you know, where the extra flies and dust and and you know those kind of <laughs> local <laughs> those local oil. You can't get those oil from uh, from Tesco's or or you know other retailers are available. Um, so yeah, that, that's my favorite food. And um, another fact is I turned down Peter Jones after being successful and getting a deal on Dragon's Den. Okay, so you ran for a bunch of things and every, every guest that comes on the show seems to go through the three things we should know about them real quickly, but I've got some questions for you. So okay, your daughter is the same age as your business. Did you yes. think of them both at the same time or was that just coincidence? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them purely accidental. <laughs> okay, I just both just... of them unplanned. No, no I'm joking. Oh. But look, um... she's gonna watch this I one. There you go, chill. I know my wife watches it exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the reality was is that you know when I started this this brand, it was just an idea. It was just I had the idea, and then I just kept going step by step. You know, and it, it wasn't like I had this vision that. I'm going to have this big business and I'm going to coincide it with the birth of, of my first daughter. No, it was just like completely the two things just happened at the same time. And I started this journey and I just, I just couldn't stop. You know, I, I just had to keep seeing it through and um, whether it was convenient timing or not, you just make it convenient. And I, you know, I've got uh, memories of being awake at 3am when the baby wakes up, you're holding it. And at that time I was just, researching i think at that time i was researching different fruits on shutterstock because we were doing a, a, a bottle design at that time which would feature different fruits basically featured in the head of a cartoon character with the fruit in the head long story we, we've, we've moved quite far beyond that that design <laughs> that design now but yeah that, that was the, you know how, how it was literally every day and you mentioned Akara. And Akara, for those of you, for the uninitiated, it's, I think this is like a West African food in general, but, but it's, to anglicize it, it's a bean fritter, but it tastes better than any bean fritter you've ever had. It's black-eyed beans, Absolutely. blended, ground, with seasoning, fried in the hottest of oils, because it can't even be like one degree off, otherwise it'll be a mess. And Absolutely. Absolutely. There is something about street food, right? Where it, it just doesn't taste the same. It's even like with jerk. If it's not cooked in the in the drum, the the old yeah. drum, not the new one, the one that was that yeah, was clean yeah. thirty five years ago, it, yeah, it just doesn't yeah, taste yeah. the same. Where all the flavors have been accumulating for decades of accumulating. <laughs> yeah, your granddad's granddad's oil drum is what we're cooking out from. <laughs> if it's not from there, it's not Absolutely. the same. And wrapped in local newspaper as well. That's the that's the that's the way to serve it. If it's not wrapped in local newspaper, I'm not. I'm not having and also, it. if you can't see through the newspaper at what you're eating, maybe it's not quite right. <laughs> which is a whole other story. You can't eat it too regularly. But, but we move on to the idea of you being on Dragons Den. So you were on Dragons Den live on BBC Two national TV. You got a deal with Peter Jones, the six foot seven multi millionaire, and you end up telling him no. 
It's a, a key well, money. <laughs> it is a it is an interesting story because it, it wasn't that simple. So we went on the TV, did the whole pitching. Um, you know, Peter Jones said, look, I like what you've got. There's something in it. Offered us a deal. The deal was an incredibly aggressive deal. It was like 30% of the business for 50 grand. And don't forget, we had already raised previously at a million pound valuation um, within three months <laughs> of, um, or three months before going on the show. So for us, it was a big step down, but I thought, you know what, he's been really aggressive. I need to take a deal because, you know, um, just in terms of a bit of gamesmanship, a bit of game theory, you have to take a deal um, if you're offered one because it guarantees you're going to be televised on the show. So I said, look, all the hours that we've spent rehearsing this pitch, coming to the studios, you know, it's literally a 48-hour period where you're in their hands. You know, you arrive, you stay in the, the, the hotel close to the studio. You're in the studio 5 a.m. I said, listen, I'm not leaving here without a deal. So we took the deal. But later on, it transpired that actually he wasn't able to really be as um, proactive um, and actually even wouldn't agree in our shareholders agreement to actually being able to meet us. Um, and we said, well, you know, at least quarterly then. And they were like, nope, not even once a year could they put in writing that you're going to see your mentor and your investor. So I said, you know, you know, it's, it's not, you know, I felt that wasn't really the spirit of partnership. Um, And so we walked away and also from their side, you know, I think they were unwilling to increase um, the resources that they needed that, that, you know, that they had invested. So they weren't willing to follow on with further money. And so that was a big no, no for us. So we went to the crowd, we crowdfunded successfully, um, late in 2019. Um, and yeah, we, we still got the buzz of being on the TV. We still got the 10,000 people on our website during that Sunday night. Um, that was actually last year, um, March. Um, so just over a year ago. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, the global pandemic may have taken a bit of the shine off the, the, the kind of achievement of being in the den and getting that deal. Um, but it was still a lot of eyeballs, a lot of exposure. And yeah, to this day, everyone wants to talk to me about Dragon's Den. Fair enough. And you know what? That's one of those gems that you, again, you don't get it unless you've been through the process. So for those of you who want to be on Dragon's Den, even if you even if you agree to a deal, it doesn't mean it's going through in the end. But only if you agree to a deal live on the show do you actually get to be on tv because for the most part they don't really show people who don't get included so that's a little cheat code if you're just trying to get on tv to promote your business i'm not saying that's what he was doing but <laughs> just play the game and then afterwards the disagree hack. on the paperwork right so that's well, a free- you know what try and make it work if you can because th- there is value to these guys absolutely you know and you cannot underestimate somebody who is worth 400 plus million you know you can't underestimate them Try and make a deal work if you get a deal. Great exposure, but don't be afraid to walk away and take another route because there are other routes available. Fair enough. Fair enough. So we're already added value before we get to the meat and potatoes of this episode. So let's get to that now. So you started a food and drinks brand, and I know a food and drinks, it sort of lumps it together, but really food is a drinks brand, right? And when it comes to starting and growing a food and drinks business, what made you think of all the people in the world that you were the person that was going to start a, a drinks company and be successful? Was it out of need? Was it, you spotted a gap in the market? What was it? So it was definitely out of a personal need. 
Um, so I have sickle cell um, and, you know, actually sickle cell has been in the media um, this last week, actually. There were, there were two young men who passed away with sickle cell. So, you know, it, it's, it's a really, really, really important condition that predominantly um, affects Black, African and Caribbean communities, but also um, Mediterranean and Asian communities and Middle Eastern communities as well. Um, so sickle cell is basically something that causes your red blood cells, red blood cells to be um, misshapen. So instead of being smooth and round, they're like a sickle type of shape. And that means that they cannot carry as much oxygen. They don't have the same lifespan and that can lead to serious episodes of pain. It can lead to strokes in children. Um, it can lead to organ damage. And for me personally, it led um, you know, it, to chronic fatigue. You know, chronic fatigue was something I've suffered from for many years. And that was my kind of um, inspiration to say, well, actually, is there a healthy alternative to Red Bull and Monster? Because I was not a big coffee drinker at all. And um, yeah, that, that was just my kind of solving my own need um, because I just physically cannot drink a full can of Red Bull. You know, <laughs> it's just too much sugar, too much going on, too much artificial stuff in there. And um, yeah, so I was like, there must be a solution. Let's go and create. So you had a so this is something that comes up quite a lot when we talk to entrepreneurs. Like it, we had it when we spoke to to Amma from This Is Planted, where she had a personal need and she wanted to solve her own problem. And it turns out that lots of other people have that problem, and maybe it's not being addressed as well as it could be. Because I think I remember you saying that in supermarkets you couldn't really find any alternatives or stuff that was healthier at the time, right? So if you're looking for an energy boost that's not going to give you that crash and burn feeling that isn't full of tons of chemicals. There wasn't a great deal available. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I wasn't personally a big coffee drinker. However, I could not really stomach those energy drinks. And, and, you know, I won't say that there were no healthy energy drinks because um, at the time there were, there were a few, but you find them in that kind of dusty health shop, you know, not all health shops are dusty, but, you know, you find them in those kind of off the beaten track kind of places. And my thinking was, is that why is there nothing that solves this need in the mainstream supermarkets, you know, in Tesco, St. Breeze and the others. And so for me, that was my, my journey. And, and even right now, there are a few that have emerged, even in this last kind of four or five years since I've been on the journey. But even they haven't really completely solved this, this problem. Um, and I think ours is, you know, I may be biased, but I think ours is, is a superior solution. It's no added sugar, um, no sweeteners, importantly. Um, and it's just all natural, a clean product that gives you a plant-based energy boost from caffeine, um, from guarana and green coffee, um, ginseng, magnesium and B vitamins as well. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a well-rounded product. Okay. That's enough of the sales pitch. That's enough. That's enough of the sales pitch. I don't know if you can I'll put that can down. Spark of it. No, okay, yeah, sure. Not until you run the check, bro. Uh, <laughs> coming, uh, coming soon. Coming soon. Uh, remember you said that, people. Um, Absolutely. So it's easy to sit here like 200,000 cans sold later. And to put that in perspective, the business is the same age as your daughter. So it's four years old, 50,000 cans a year sold on average, right? Well, um, four years old, but three years of trading. Four years old, but three years of trading. So okay, so, it took uh, so us it's... a full year 
to even launch a product. No, close to 18 months to launch a product is how long it took us. Wow. So, yeah. So what made and you think that you 18 months, it? just to put it in context, sorry, again, is that 18 months included a year of full-time work. Okay. Literally working nine to five, Monday to Friday, full-time on this for a year. And a further six months before that of just research, ideas, testing, and then we got to a product. So anyway, just letting, letting people know, it's not quick. So this was basically hard work, right? What made you, of all people, think you could do it? Was it like some past experience? Was it just entrepreneurial arrogance? And I say that in the nicest possible way. Entrepreneurs think they can solve problems that they, on paper, have no business trying to, but often do. So what made you think you, of all people, could do it? I think um, definitely there has been some of that, I would say, entrepreneurial arrogance or self-belief. You know, everyone has to, I think, believe in yourself if you want to start a business. Um, you know, you, you can't really wait for other people to, to encourage you or tell you you can do it. You've got to believe you can do it. Otherwise, there's no point beginning. And so for me, there's that. But then I guess that was also paired with um, an ignorance of what happens in the food and beverage industry, because... I was coming from the social enterprise sector, largely where I'd spent the last kind of 10 years running my own social enterprise that involved doing like applications to like funders and running projects, partnering with schools, partnering with different institutions. And, and you know, th that, that was my life, you know, that was my, my, my main occupation. But then I had this idea and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to get some mock-ups done. I'm going to get some stuff done. I'm going to email Sainsbury's. And so I've still got some of the very, very early emails I sent out to buyers. I would find them on LinkedIn, connect with them, and just find their email because, uh, you know, I, I know that people's emails are normally first name dot last name, or it might just be first name or last name dot first name. I just try the, you know, try the different combinations of their emails, stick it all, <laughs> stick it all in an email and just send them like a little email with, with an image. And, you know, at first I was just literally sending a digital image saying coming soon, you know, and that coming soon kept on shifting, you know, I'd keep on shifting it a few months back then I shift it back again. And, and it took literally about 18 months, as I said, to, to, to even just get a first product to market. So Ignorance is, was a thing, was a big um, driver. Okay, so like with most things, none of us know how hard it's going to be before we get started, right? Because often we probably wouldn't, even with this podcast, if you were told me we'll be sitting here 53 episodes later and everything that it's taken to get to this point, one episode every week and now doing Dilemmas on a Sunday, every Sunday at 11.30 on YouTube, um, to, say, <laughs> to say all of that, it would be, I would never have done it. Right. And I think that applies to all of us. And you started by sharing the idea early. What was it that made you think, OK, um, sending it, sending it to these buyers and Sainsbury's and going through LinkedIn and sending just images, not even like an actual can of drink, no flavor, nothing, just a picture. What made you start there? So in reality, uh, you know, I was always sharing. And, and so this is one thing that I, I say to people is. You know, if you have a concept, try and do something to, to bring it into reality. You know, don't just let it be um, something just, just stuck in your head. You know, there's so many ways to get cheap artwork done. You know, you can go on people per hour. You know, I, I even did things like explainer videos and, you know, really, you know, stuff that just helped 
curate what I was trying to, to, to bring to the market. And, you know, we would spend 50 pounds here, 100 pounds there. Sometimes I spend, you know, more to just keep on just bringing the ideas to life. And then what I would do is I'd show people on my phone. I'd go like around anyone, anyone who, who I met during that period, I would have brought my phone out and said, hey, look, I'm developing this idea. What do you think? And I show them a little picture on my phone. And they would say, oh, yeah, that looks interesting. And I say, okay, which one do you prefer? And I'd show them a range of designs, a range of things. And, you know, it was, it was really, really a, a helpful um, process to help me validate even before having a product to help validate, you know, what type of, 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 um, of product, what type of approach, what type of packaging, what type of messaging. Um, and feedback is the name of the game it, for me in, in entrepreneurship getting that customer feedback early on and actually listening to it. Crucial. Okay. Now you shared a story about how you came to sort of think about that from a workshop and I was going to steal it, but you shared a story <laughs> of how it goes. You shared a story. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story. So the story literally, and this was at the British library and um, you know, they do some really, really interesting workshops. Um, at that time, I think we were doing a workshop around sound and different stuff, but for some reason, this um, person working for the British Library shared an example of, um, you know, how ideas, and I guess um, it's about ideas and bringing things into reality. And what, what she did is she had a piece of paper. The first piece of paper, she just wrote the word apple. And she held it up and said, what does this say? Everyone said, apple, right? It was clear. Then she had an image on another piece of card or piece of paper. And she held it up and said, you know, what is this image? The image was an image of an apple. So we said, okay, that's an apple. Everyone was clear that's an apple. Then she brought out a real apple and held it up again and showed us, okay, on um, what is this? And it was a real apple. And so we all was clear, okay, that's a real apple. And so she then asked us what I thought was a very, very powerful question. She said, well, which apple is real? you know, which is the one that is real. And I think you could even go even further. You know, you could even say to somebody, think of an image of an apple in your head, you know, think of it in your head. And so from that thinking in your head to having the word on paper, to having an image, to having the real thing, at all points in time, that thing was real at all points in time, you know. And so for me, that is the way I feel that, um, you know, entrepreneurs and, and, you know, the true entrepreneurial spirit is that thing in your head is real to you, right? And you've got to then go out to the world and make it real to the rest of the world. And then that is how you attract investment. That's how you attract customers. That is how you build um, a product and or service that I think people, people will be able to resonate with. It has to be real to you first and solve your own problems as well. Um, that's another, I think, really important thing before you can then go out and solve the problems of, of, of others. Okay, and just to, just, to just to really hammer that point home, because to quote mm. my favorite, one of my favorite grime MCs, that could have gone over some people's heads and under their noses. So um, if you know who that is, you know. But <laughs> the point is, is that... <laughs> You don't need to know, don't worry. You don't need to know. Okay, what I know they know in it. <laughs> I'm going to shazam that later, don't worry. Um, the point of this is, is that your product doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't need to be how you fully envision it in your mind. It just needs to represent it enough to take other people on the journey. So, for example, like 
you're making a product you want to build something get a really great picture of it don't try and build the thing get a really great picture of it and then start showing that to people and then evolve that progressively you don't so for example if you're building a house no one starts putting the bricks down straight away there's blueprints there's drawings there's there's various versions and then on top of that when you're buying like new builds they do these little mock-ups they do these little mock-ups where they can show you what the layout of the house is going to be and all of this stuff. And even when you go to buy the house, they may, be, they may have only finished one house and put sofas in that one house. They haven't even built the one you're going to buy. But it's taking it from the still picture to the little model to the real life kind of thing. Because in a lot of these show homes, the plumbing doesn't even work. So <laughs> it's just so you've got an idea and then you get the final thing. So applying that to your business is crucial. From the very beginning, start sharing your idea and start getting feedback because ultimately what you build is not for you. Your name is on the business, but ultimately the business serves other people. It doesn't serve you. So getting their opinion in as quickly as possible is all that matters. That's the MVP, right? That's that whole lean startup thinking. Just get an MVP. Get something minimum viable product. Get something you can show people, you know. And, and even before a minimum viable product, I know there are people who, even if you're a tech company, you can have a site that doesn't even work. But if people go <laughs> on the site and they are willing to, to try and, uh, you know, and, and use the service or product that you're, you're offering, then again, it just gives that validation. Early validation is crucial. For sure. So that was the early bit. Once you started sharing the ideas, sending people pictures, now you've got to actually make a real drink, right? And you mentioned something called a flavor house, which I had never heard of before this. And that's going to be, I think that's going to be crucial for people to understand. So firstly, tell us what a flavor house is. And secondly, tell me, uh, tell everyone that your experience of the Flavor House, the story, how much it cost and, and what happened. Okay, so a Flavor House is a really interesting thing. If you're interested in creating a food or beverage product, a Flavor House is basically a company who will help you to formulate. And I didn't know initially that Flavor Houses would, um, you know, could actually do development for you without charge. Um, if they believe that you've got something that might well end up being a product that they can basically receive some regular business from, you know, because if they formulate a product, include their flavors, sometimes they'll source ingredients for you, then they may end up making some money from you in the long run. So they may actually do some development days for you um, without actually charging you up front. So I didn't learn that until much later. So my initial experiences was, you know, my very first experience was putting into Google um, so this is when I first had the idea on a Sunday afternoon, I went to Google, typed in food technologists in London. That was the search. Clicked that, found the first person that had a mobile number on the screen, phoned that person on a Sunday afternoon, the guy called Brian Smith. Now he's, 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 he's no longer with us actually, but spoke to Brian, said to him, look, want to have a chat? He said, okay, I'd love to. He came to London two weeks later with a couple of his friends who were another food technologist and another guy who was into marketing. We spent about two grand um, paying them for an afternoon workshop. It was probably heavily overpriced, but you know, for that, it was, a, it, for us, it was the start of that journey. And so, um, you know, our, our journey was literally step-by-step step, finding lots of different partners, speaking to lots of people, having lots of conversations. And, and one thing I would encourage people to do is, you know, 
in that same spirit of you know bringing your um, your vision to life for your customers, it's also the same for your partners as well. So you know, with my partners, in terms of all, all potential partners like flavor houses or manufacturers, I would have a deck that was ready to send them this deck and say, look, this is the brand, this is the the, the need that it fills, this is where we're going to sell it. Here's the packaging example, and so on and so forth. So a lot of those things were, were already included. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, it, it gave us the opportunity to then um, meet a final manufacturer who actually took us on board. Um, and yeah, the, the, you know, the, the, rest, the rest is history. What's interesting about that story, and I want people to take away from that, is that when you're starting something, it's, I think one of the best investments you can make early before you've even built something is to buy some time from an expert, not to necessarily bring them into the business, but maybe spend a couple hundred pounds. I'm not saying you have to spend the 2000 that Philip spent, but ultimately spend a little bit of money and a little bit is relative, right? And have a long conversation. I'm talking maybe two to three hours with someone who knows a lot about this industry, because that's an early validation point. Number one, it could tell you how hard this is going to be. Number two, it can let you know how much it costs to play in this space. And number three, it's going to let you know if you're really up for doing all of that work, because you could cross this off your list if you're looking for something a lot less low maintenance. And that person probably has a network and knowledge and resources that can help you segue to different environments. So the food technologist may know some who does bottling who know who may know a manufacturer who may know someone in marketing and all of these people are people you can tap into and start having a conversation again if we go back to the this is planted episode sorry if we go back to the episode with latana where he was talking about raising investment and all of these things and also the, the episode with arena ultimately raising investment you don't know who's going to invest in your business. You have no idea where you're going to meet this person. You have no idea who's going to be able to add value. So having these conversations and trying to pulling as much wisdom and knowledge early before you even really get started is going to help you because when you get questions you can't answer, you've got someone to pick up the phone to and ask. Now, in your case, Philip, you said you spent £2,000 in that initial sort of like flavor development session. How much money did you actually start with or... In fact, how much money did it take to get past the first year, which may be a better answer? So that question around um, how much money <laughs> did I have to start with and how much money did we use in the first year? I didn't really have a fund for this. You know, it wasn't a thing that I said initially, OK, I'm going to start with this budget because I had no idea as to what the product development would cost. I had no idea initially how big of an investment it would be um, to actually launch a manufactured product. And a lot of those costs became clearer as we went forward, you know, became clearer as we went from one step to the next step to the next step. So for me, it was like each month I would say, okay, let's do some product development. I'll pay a thousand pounds for this. You know, let's do some um, visuals, will pay for that you know we even went as far as at one point paying an agency six grand to do some focus groups for us you know so there were things that we just got wrong you know and and, and over invested um because you know one thing I, I will warn people is that there are agencies out there who will sell you dreams that you know what we can develop your product we can give you a brand we can do all of this for you 
and actually they're really there to make money from startups and people who have been watching Dragon's Den and um, The Apprentice and so on and think, yeah, I can do that. And they're ready to take your money, you know. So you, you've got to be mindful of agencies um, at times. But what I will say is that within the first year, we spent um, in total about 25 grand before we had got any funding. So this is purely personal funds, um, personal savings, you know, that there was no, you know, there was no external investment. It was just just my own um, desire to just keep the dream going, keep developing it month by month by month. And funny enough, at a certain point, you know, I had friends who came and said, you know, Philip, you're spending a lot of money on this, on this hobby. You know, why don't you just take it a few steps backwards, you know, make some juices at home, go to a Sunday market, get a little market store, sell the juices, get customer feedback from there, you know, develop your brand from, from that kind of entry level. And I said, look, you know what? I've got a brand that I can see um, needs to fill a gap. And that gap is a mainstream supermarket gap. So my journey was always to go from product development to manufactured products to a scalable brand. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't go through that kind of market stall level because I feel like there's a lot of extremely good products at market stall level. Um, but if you really want to scale a business, then I think you should start with that in mind and work with that end goal in mind. And that's something that there's a couple of things you mentioned in there that I kind of want to drive home again in that firstly, the 25,000 you spent is because you envisioned this going straight to supermarkets. And when we start talking about who your first customers were, we can see how that works. And there's nothing wrong with the DIY model, but again, in the food and drink space, you're going to have to get to a point where this is legally food grade, which means you're going to, whatever you mix up in your house, whatever you mix up for the market store, it's not going to be what ends up on a shelf somewhere because the product needs to change for it to be safe for mass consumption. But in addition to that, it needs to be, it needs to change for it to be able to sit on a shelf for X number of time. And for us to know when it's going to expire, the one you mix at home, you have no idea when that's going to expire. You have no idea what, what allergens may necessarily be created in that mix. So if you're looking at going to retail, this is kind of the path that you eventually end up going. Even if you start off on the, on the market store, the product that ends up in the supermarket will not be the same. The other thing to bear in mind is that you mentioned focus groups, and this is something that I do at work a lot. Some tips that I can throw out there. When it comes to doing a focus group, you can actually recruit people yourself. If you post a job on indeed which is free or read which is free and say you're looking for a focus group you have to for a focus group participant you have to meet this this and this criteria you could get six people pay them 50 pounds each for an hour of their time you could pay them less if they're students but only if students are your target audience and you could have that organized in about two weeks and that could cost you 500 pounds if you want to do some more different surveying, you could use SurveyMonkey, which I, again, use professionally. You build the survey, you make sure you've got the right questions, and you can pay for responses. They'll come back to you in 24 hours. The responses cost as little as £2. So really, you could get feedback from 50 people on maybe what they think of the name, what they think of the colour, what they think of the concept in 24 hours for £100. So it doesn't need to cost thousands of pounds, and you can keep rinsing and repeating that process 
it to get the feedback you need. But specifically for those of you going into retail and wanting to know what £25,000 invested in your first year before you've got any funding, before you've got any customers buys you, well, it technically buys you because it's not one for one, right? You don't spend 24 grand and then your first customer is X person. But Philip, who was your first customer and what did it mean when you got that deal? So funny enough, our very first customer was Ocado. Um, and Ocado actually listed us through a program they had at that time, which was called Discovery Shop, where Discovery Shop was there to kind of bring in the, the kind of next generation of brands. Um, and so that Discovery Shop opportunity came up. We didn't have a manufactured product. So I remember that they very clearly there was a date we had to submit the samples by. Um, I literally drove to Liverpool. We met with the Flavor House. We finalized the, um, you know, uh, they had put together some, some samples for us. Um, the design house we had had actually put together some mock-up bottles and those bottles were purely mock-ups, right? So, you know, they, they had a shrink sleeve with our packaging, with our branding on them. And those were literally in the design house, like shrunk on with a hairdryer to shrink it around the, the bottle. We filled them up in the flavor house, sealed them, put them in like a, a chilled um, container or, or like some cool box container, packaged that up, sent that <laughs> to go to the buyers. And yeah, that was actually how we, we achieved um, our very first listing. Um, however, obviously we didn't have a manufactured product. So they requested product and by the window, by the time that um, we had product ready, we'd missed the window. <laughs> so, cause we missed the window, it literally took us about a year to, to actually launch um, into Ocado. So, you know, our, our actual first customer that we were able to serve and get money was early in 2018, like January, 2018. Um, was a, a distributor called DDC Foods. So DDC Foods were great. Um, you know, they gave me a bit of a reality check on the price that I could, that I, I should be expecting. Um, but that was again part of my learning of the industry is that you know what the price in your head you think, oh yeah, my product is worth this, and people are going to pay me that. It doesn't always work like that. And and um, you know, uh, uh, you know, we went, we worked with DDC Foods, and we got into universities, corporate offices. So, you know, that, that was a really kind of exciting and vibrant part of the business. Although our product has evolved a lot since then, um, you know, we did a lot of validation, a lot of taste testing, going out, doing sampling events, activations at universities, corporate offices. We'd be in the lobby giving people out little samples of the drinks to try, um, doing vote with your cups events. I remember doing one at UCL where people would like taste the drinks and then drop it in a bucket if they if they like the drink or if they don't like it, they drop it in one or the other bucket. And by the end of the day, we had one bucket that was full up. And, um, you know, I, I don't think we actually even properly launched that UCL. But the point being is that it was just that process and gaining partners and, you know, engaging with students. And, yeah, it was, it was really, really positive, you know. And, um, yeah, that, that, that was our first introduction to the market. Awesome. So just so you covered a lot in that segment there. So just to clarify, your first customer, the first person, the first organization, person or thing to agree to purchase some of your drink food 
was Ocado. And Ocado is not somebody's cousin. Ocado is a massive food distributor in the UK that really, really pushed home delivery when they first started. They were the first like exclusively large home delivery service. So not a joke. They're a big deal. And then after that, you put um, the next customer who you actually were able to serve, because again, startup mode, you get a customer and then you figure out how to how to serve them was DDC Foods. And they gave you access to universities and, and colleges and office spaces where you, I assumed that I was in vending machines and behind bars and things like that, which is a really, really cool placement. But then you also mentioned some of the marketing activities you did. And it'll be good to, to inspire others with some initial marketing ideas on what worked. So I know we spoke about trade shows and university partnerships and sponsorships. Which of those three was most effective for you? And can you tell us a story about one of them? Sure. So interesting you know, all of them, I think, were, were really important. So, for example, um, you know, when we first raised our, our first money, which was actually um, a Virgin startup loan, um, you know, we actually used that money to do a trade show. And that trade show was the IFE, um, International Food Event, um, at the Excel Center. That was our very first trade show. We had a little tiny stand, like a little 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters. Quite literally, you could only put, like, a few bottles of the drinks on the table. Um, but, you know, interestingly through that, we then, you know, took part in a competition, like a startup pitching competition, which we won. Um, we then met Tesco, who at that time were doing like a, a, a kind of um, Tesco, um, it was called Tesco Backit. It was like a crowdfunding platform that sat on the Tesco website. And apparently, you know, they were supposed to kind of use that as a pipeline to bring brands into their main kind of supply chain ecosystem. Um, didn't necessarily work out like that, but through that, we got some really great um, you know, mentors. We went into like a really great, um, you know, went into like a really great kind of training program with them as well, which was quite good for, for networking. Um, but also we, we, did, we then got some sampling events in Tesco stores. So I remember being in, the big Tesco in Tottenham, you know, being in that lobby, people walking up, you know, and this is Tottenham. So, you know, people, you're offering people drinks and people are drinking. They're like, oh, nah, man. You know, people are like, <laughs> like people's reactions were like, nah, man, that doesn't taste good. Or you know, and then we did it in like different stores, like the bank, there's like a, a Tesco, if you know, in um, like really close to like bank station. Um, so, you know, it, it gave us a variety of experiences. So for us, it was that thing of just being out there, putting on our branded t-shirts, having our products visible, pouring people little cups of samples for them to drink and just asking them, what do you think? You know, letting them tell us, you know, I, I don't even like to, in those scenarios, explain to people what the product is. I like them to look at the product and say, you know, I like to say to them, look, tell me what you think, you know, what do you think of this product? Like what? How do you read it? Like, you know, what does it say to you? You know, because that kind of perception, um, you know, when you first look at something is, you know, it, it's hard for you to gauge that once you've already fed somebody, you know, what you want to give them, you know, because when a product is on a shelf by itself, you're not going to be there to tell them, <laughs> to tell them what the product is. Um, so, you know, we did stuff like that. We did partnerships at universities, for example, like, Manchester, we sponsored their whole netball team. They all had like, we did like a kit sponsorship. 
you know, which was fantastic um, experience for us. And we, we ran events for them, supporting the, the squad. And yeah, we even got to, to be in the director's box on, on a game day. You know, I don't know if it was really a director's box, but it was somewhere up above watching the, 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 the different teams play matches. And, you know, just fantastic, like actually connecting with real people, um, you know, and, and also they felt that, that real excitement of kind of being part of a brand, you know, and, and having a company that's given money, but also um, is actually coming out to meet them. You know, it's, it's very rare that, that that type of thing happens. Awesome. Okay. So, so those are some of the things that you did in the early days and how they worked out. I do wonder then um, with COVID and all of those things, you went direct to retail, you were doing in-person customer interactions. So, I know we spoke about you pivoting towards Amazon and selling directly through your website. How have you managed that transition? And also selling drinks online is very different to giving someone a sip to say, is this any good? Because you can't try it before you buy it. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. And that has been a major challenge of um, really kind of leaning into D2C is that how do you promote trial? Because, you know, we're a new brand, right. And, people would often inbox us and ask us, hey, how can I buy one can? You know, where can I buy two cans? So at one point we actually developed a taster pack on our website, which was there to literally be one can of each flavor. And we'd send that out for a fiver, you know? So instead of you having to spend um, 18 pounds 99 on a case of 12 drinks, you can buy one of each. And then that one of each can then, you know, give you the opportunity to make up your mind. And we actually found that, those taster packs were returning, people were returning back, like 25% of people who bought a taster pack actually came back to buy a full price um, or to make a subscription um, purchase after that. So for us, you know, that, that's a key thing. And we tend to use discounts for people's first order. We give like a 40% off at the moment um, to encourage people to just try it because, you know, when brands launch new products, they give you free testers, right? And if you've ever seen a brand launching, um, like Lucasade launch a new flavor, they've got people in the tube station or, you know, outside the, you know, outside the, the supermarket or any busy place giving away free samples to say, look, here you go, try this for free, blah, blah, blah. So for us, that is a really, really important thing is how can we incentivize people to just try for the first time? Because we're confident and, you know, we have really strong repeat customer purchase. Um, each month around 25% of our customers are repeat customers. So, you know, we're, we're really convinced that our product can be something that, um, that can be scalable and um, we just need to get people to try. And, and that was one of the challenges. But I guess the other thing we've really leaned into is online marketing. And that has included, you know, running Facebook ads, um, running Instagram ads. Um, you know, if any of you have been on our website, um, you know, then the cookies are going to start following you around the internet and serving you ads in different places. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes you meet people who are like, Hey, I've seen an ad for this, you know, I've, or some people have seen me talking on one of the ads literally. And they're like, Hey, I've seen you, you know? So, you know, it, it's, it's a, somehow the, the internet is a powerful thing in almost leveling the playing field. Um, Cause to some extent, any brand can go on Amazon and be placed next to Red Bull, <laughs> you know? So um, it, it's difficult to go straight into Sainsbury's and be next to Red Bull. But, you know, we, we've been into the top 30 energy drinks on Amazon before. We've, 
Um, you know, we've been able to, to meet lots of consumers, have conversations with people, get loads of customer feedback and reviews as well, which is so crucial. A lot of that stuff you can't really get on shelf, like a detailed review from a customer, including pictures sometimes of how they use the product, you know, unboxings and so on. So there's a lot of things I think digitally that actually give us an advantage to know a lot more about our customer and understand how we can engage them and meet, our needs, meet their needs better. Okay. And that's, there's so many interesting things to pull out from that, but something that really stands out to me that a lot of people are going to be thinking, how can I give someone 40% off my product to try it? Well, how the maths on that works is basically whatever you would pay in marketing to, to get that person to buy your product. If you can take a portion of that, say, for example, you spend 10 pounds for every person who buys your product. Okay. That's your limit. So how can I shape that into a discount? So can I give someone 25% off a product where I'm spending kind of like five, six pounds to give them that discount? Can I give people free shipping or a one pound trial? So I'm still spending the same 10 pounds, but I'm spending it differently. And that's one way to do it. So I think you can get really, really creative to get people to try your products when it's being sold online. But to wrap up this half of the episode, we've covered a number of things where ultimately, if you're going to start a business understanding the need that you're solving and if it helps if it's already a need that you've seen in your life or seen in the lives of people close to you that you can address as well as going for the next going through the next steps and thinking okay I don't know what I'm doing but Google is my best friend let me Google let me find words that make a little bit of sense and then get time with the people who know a little bit more than I do whether they're experts in the field whether they're people who already run businesses or like if you're going to sell something into retail send a buyer a message on LinkedIn and say, hey, um, I'm thinking about doing this. Your feedback would be amazing. No pressure, no, no harm, no foul. And what you'll find is that maybe the senior person you send it to doesn't respond. But if you find a graduate who works in there and has been there for maybe six months, they've got more time on their hands. They can answer that question. And you send out 20, 30, 40, 50 of those and you get two or three replies, but they help you really shape your next steps. And then when it comes to starting, start, as basic and as simple as possible. Start with a concept, start with an image, start with something you made at home, not necessarily, <laughs> be very, very careful if it's food and drink, right? Because you don't want to get anyone sick. That is a crime. But start with something simple. Start with a concept, start with an idea that you can share, a picture. So literally, this is what I want to make. And these are the top three things that you as a customer gain from, from using this product. Does this sound like something you would use? Do you think that color makes sense? Do you think the name makes sense? Do you think the whole idea is stupid? If they think it's stupid, often what I find in my research sessions, when someone tells you something is wrong, they often suggest the right way of you doing it. And that may lead to a hard pivot in, in you changing what you do. And then when you're looking at for your first customers, unconventional ways make a lot of sense. How can you get in front of people? How can you encourage trial? How can you encourage people to really get involved in your market, involved with your product, whether that's through social media, whether that's in person when we can go outside again, whether that's direct mail, whether that's sending samples, whatever you do, or even giving free products away to places where you know there's going to be a lot of high traffic. An idea that I think is slept on literally slept on is whenever we can go to carnival whenever we can do public events if you take like a bucket of your drink and leave it on the side on a hot day with ice people will try that drink as long as they're all sealed and the thing is clean obviously people will try it and just hand them out 
hand them out let people try and get it in people's hands because ultimately that's what you're aiming for in the second half of this episode we're going to break down the mistakes the challenges some some missteps maybe as well as answering some quick fire questions to really get to some useful information for you guys who want to start a food and drinks business who want to go into retail and who maybe even want to be acquired by a big massive global conglomerate so stay tuned and we'll break it down for you after this if you have any questions or dilemmas that you'd like to have featured on our podcast or on our YouTube channel, go to blackmillennialmoney.com, click the contact page and send it to us. Names will be changed or kept anonymous unless you say otherwise. We are back in this episode of Black Millennial Money where we're talking about getting your product into the supermarket. If you want to start a food and drinks business, this is the episode for you. If you haven't got your pen and paper out yet in this next half, it's absolutely going to be necessary. So we have Mr. Philip Uday from Food Vitamin Energy. They make a 100% natural energy drink that gives you all of the benefits of the other energy drinks, you know, with none of the downsides. So in this half of the episode, we're going to start with some of Philip's early mistakes so you can learn from what he did wrong or what he would do differently at the very least if he knew what he knew now when he started. So to start off, the first question is, um, did you make any hiring decisions that you look back on and think, hmm, maybe I wouldn't do that the same way? Well, yeah, I, I guess early doors, we did not have resources to, uh, you know, hire the best candidates, right? And, and I'm not saying that we hired really bad candidates, but we would go on things like intern-wise, we would go on uh, some of the other ones, I uh, can't remember, but you know, we'd go on these intern platforms and just get people who were willing to come and do work as part of their course, um, you know, people who were current students um, and people who were just willing to, to just do some work just so they could learn and get some experience, right? So that for us was great. Um, but, you know, not, not all interns are, are created equal, right? And, and some would come and they you know, may not have the motivation and some would come and, you know, just not be at, at the right level, right? And so I feel like, you know, there, there, there are some people in, I don't know if it's, I think it might be Netflix or, you know, so some of these companies that have this policy of like, you know, fire fast. You know, if, if you hire people and you realize, hey, this person is not at the level, get rid of them quickly, give them something, you know, give them a sweetener so that they feel happy, uh, you know, going off and doing the, the, whatever the next thing is. But yeah, sometimes you can have some bad, bad hires and, and even hiring like through a proper recruitment process doesn't stop that from happening as well. Um, so, you know, we, we've seen all ends of, of, of that. Um, but, you know, one, one of the hiring tricks I would say is that I tend not to advertise and, you know, the people who have come into the business and stayed in the business for um, long periods of time, you know, including I've had a couple of staff members who've been three years in the business and, you know, how I hired them is they actually approached me, you know, that I didn't like put out an ad or this, they approached me to say, Hey, you know, what? I love this concept. I want to be part of this. How can I join? You know? And um, you know, I would keep, what I would call a fishing hook on a website called Angel List. And it was just a sales, I think sales and marketing manager role. And I just keep that there and just see who comes, you know, just see for about uh, at least two years, I just left that there. I was not actively hiring, but just left it running. And, you know, periodically we get people popping up and say, hey, wow, this looks amazing. How can I get involved? And so, yeah, that, that was 
kind of some of the the the, the learning um uh, something just to yeah. add on to that though is i've worked with young people again and if interns can be great students can be great but i think if you're going to bring them on you need to have very very clear things that you want them to deliver and have it in a yes. very clear structured way so essentially you're going to do 30 percent of the work and let them finish it so you, you because they're very early in their career they don't know what they're doing and they came here to get some insight so for it to be useful to both of you it's kind of like how at least when I was learning how to cook, my mum would start something and watch me finish it. I think that's more what you're bringing in interns for. So for things that are important, but don't require all of your brain power, but take up too much time for you. So that could be something like social media research, like which influences can we find? So you could set the criteria. I need women of this age who live in this country who have at least 10,000 followers. That's that's a box that this person can work to and say, I need a hundred of them. So if you can sort of put some parameters around that and then there's scope for you to actually get the value you need while helping them develop and understand the workplace. But Philip, you're going to, I think you're going to go on to the next sort of challenge. That no, you no, no. I, I absolutely agree with that. And um, just, just to add on to that, I, I will say though that attitude is key because if people have a positive attitude and they're like, yes, you know, if they're willing to actually go away and try things, even when things are challenging or they're not quite sure, they're willing to put the effort in. Um, you can tell quite quickly who's who's you know who's not willing to try it and who is willing to try. Um, but yeah, absolutely agree on the structure. And I, I think one of the other things, and this comes also to structure as well, is you know we used the slogan on our early packaging, which said, "No monsters, no bull." So you know, obviously referring to two of the major energy drinks brands, the largest energy drinks brands in the, in the world, No Monsters, No Ball was kind of a slogan we used to kind of imply in a playful way that we're a lot healthier than those other, um, you know, those other brands. Um, we didn't realize that Red Bull had actually trademarked the term No Ball um, within the um, energy drinks category. Um, or within all soft drinks um, in, in the category. And they wrote us a letter and they said, look, you need to take this off your website, off your packaging, off, <laughs> off any materials where you're still using this. This needs to go because this is our trademark. And we looked at it and we thought, you know what? They have filed a trademark, which, you know, by all accounts, it was a defensive trademark. So it wasn't something that they were actually using. It was more to prevent other people from kind of infringing or, you know, using their copyright to, um, to, to actually promote themselves. So yeah, they basically wrote to us. And, and so, you know, things like that, obviously, you know, you're starting out, you cannot check absolutely everything, but sometimes it's worth having a check on, particularly on things like slogans that you're going to stick onto your um, packaging website or wherever, you know, things that are quite final once they're there particularly on packaging, um, because, you know, websites easier to change, but packaging, that's a, you know, it's a big problem if you haven't checked um, on IPO. And that's qu quite easy to go on .gov.uk, um, I think, slash IPO, you know, and um, intellectual property office, that is. And just, you know, make sure you check before you put anything out there into the world. And that is a useful tip going the other way. So if you want to protect your brand, so go onto the intellectual property office and register your trademark 
as soon as you're sure about what it is, because if you're going to change your name next week, probably not the best time to, to start paying money to register. But to register your trademark, well, if I remember rightly, starts from less than 200 pounds. So you could actually have your brand name protected and stop other people making a drink or a piece of clothing or whatever it is with your, with your name on it. And now that doesn't mean that, say, for example, if I wanted to start a company called, called Food, but I was selling headphones, Philip can't do anything about that, but I'm not competing against him for food and drinks. And that's the important thing about protecting your intellectual property. So moving on from the... Yeah. Worth noting briefly on that one, just um, within that, sometimes also range extension is really important as well. So it's something to think about. You know, at the moment we have clothing, we've got merchandise, we've got, um, you know, different things we could be selling phone cases we could be selling clothing merchandise think about that as well when you when you're protecting your food and beverage brand do think about hey you know later on i might make some t-shirts we might sell these t-shirts and let's protect that (laughs) let's protect that as well so yeah we're we're doing that in advance for sure but also manage your costs at the beginning because the more classifications you start to add the more expensive it can be so it's definitely worth sticking to the first thing making sure that works and then you can start doing brand extensions but for you philip how big do you think food can be like where what's like how big do you think it could be are you gonna try to do like a 50 cent vitamin water deal and sell to coca-cola what's the plan i mean to put it i guess to put the category in context um red bull sold um 8 billion cans um, in 2019 of Red Bull, right? So that's one for every person on the planet. Um, you know, and, and, and you, you know how big they are, you know, what their budgets are, that, you know, these people are buying football teams, you know, multiple football teams, multiple F1 teams, spending money on events, this, that, the other. You know, they've almost, their business has almost become like a, a, a kind of all-encompassing lifestyle business, right? And when I look at that business and I look at the category, which, you know, is, is around $60 billion um, globally. And you look at that and you think, well, actually, everybody knows that these market leading products are not healthy. And we all know that. And some people would avoid these drinks and say, no, I'll never drink that. But there are loads of people who do drink these drinks. And so for me, there is a niche. Um, you know, there is a niche and there is an opportunity to bring in new people into the category who the need state would appeal to them in terms of having a drink on the go, give you the energy boost, give you that vitamin boost as well, but in a really clean, natural, healthy way. So my ambition is, even if we can be 1% of as big as Red Bull, that's major, you know, if we can be 10%, <laughs> you know, if we can get to 10% of the size of Red Bull, even bigger, you know, that, that's major. So for me, you know, the, the sky's the limit on this brand because I think globally nobody has yet solved this healthy Red Bull problem. Okay. And just to clarify, you're not saying no to selling to Coca-Cola. Just not yet? Um, <laughs> I mean, for me, don't answer that the, question. The you don't have to answer it. that question. You don't no, have... no, no. I, I will. I will. I will. But because the, the the way I see it is that this is, you know, if it was game theory, this is an infinite game, right? The infinite game means that all factors and all um, all things are variable, right? So 
today money's money is an obstacle we're still a startup you know we're small tomorrow we could be vc backed and money's no longer an obstacle right and then you know we may get to a stage where we could um sell and exit the business we may get to a stage where we could ipo you know these are all options all on the table but for me i'm just following that north star right and my north star is how can we serve as many people as possible who you know need a healthier alternative to monster and red bull and at the moment it's not readily available to them in the mainstream supermarkets and there's no brand that currently occupies front of mind in that space. Because as soon as you say energy drink, people will always say Monster, Red Bull, and the others, right? And then if you say to someone, okay, healthy energy drink, you know, I challenge you, go and test it out. Say healthy energy drink. People then start to struggle. You know, nobody knows, like, what is that healthier alternative? So that's where we think we can exist. And that's all we're shooting for. Okay, that's good to know. That's good to know. So, for the we people- would sell. In short, yes, we would sell. In short, we would. You know, it's <laughs> it's, it's on the table. You know, if, if it was on the table and it's something to consider, we obviously we would have to consider. You know. Okay, I, I didn't want to press you on it, but I kind of got that in the like all options are available, but we haven't agreed. We're to both ebos. Okay, we're, we're both ebos. <laughs> we, we know. <laughs> We, we, we know ourselves, you know, we know what's going on. No so. comment, no comment. Yeah. Moving on from that, <laughs> what advice would you give to, to a drinks brand that's just getting started? Like, what things come to mind for you? So for some of our listeners, they may have started, a, they may have started their own little the drinks business at home during lockdown in 2020 and just thinking, okay, now I'm selling this. What, what advice would you give to someone who is very early in the game? Early in the game, if you're doing this kind of homemade type of brands, again, I would say invest into understanding your product. And I I think making stuff at home is actually a good way to validate flavor combinations, validate, you know, the the, the type of, 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 of ingredients you want to use. But then at some point, also invest into branding, you know, invest into the look and feel of your product. Because before people ever taste your product, they're going to see the packaging. And if it's on shelf and if it does not look like it's something people want to try or want to grab, if it's not enticing, then it's just going to hinder you in terms of your, your rate of sale. You know? So, you know, yeah, I'd encourage you invest as much on your branding, packaging, as well as in the actual formulation of the ingredients and, and the actual taste profile itself. Okay. Okay. And that's a, that's a really interesting point. And because I remember seeing a bunch of stuff on Instagram and a bunch of stuff on YouTube of people with their brands. And a lot of the time, it's like you're telling me this tastes great, but looking at it, it's not making me think it tastes great. And I do wonder, is there an advantage with, if you're making a herb, if you're making a natural drink and it kind of goes a little bit green in the bottle for a little while, what if you had a colored bottle so no one could know that this thing was green? Because like Capri Sun, what color is Capri Sun? Like nobody knows. Like, <laughs> like literally nobody has pulled a Capri Sun out to know what color that is. And I think there's, and for me, like talking about Red Bull, I was personally surprised to see that it's kind of the color of urine when you pour it out. I didn't know that. I did, you just, you just kind of drink it from the can, right? But had you seen that on the shelf? Like, do I really want to drink 
that but yeah food for thought in how you present yourself online especially when you're early stage because you can look a lot bigger and a lot more serious and credible and organized just by having great pictures or having an attractive looking product um the other thing I want to ask you is what's the biggest thing that you've learned in your journey to this point? Because you've been here four years, 200,000 plus cans sold later and going from being in retail to not so much in retail to being on online selling without people tasting it. What's the biggest thing that you've learned? And what's, the, I guess, the learning that you could share with everyone else listening and watching? Cool. Um, yes, I think you know, the, the, the really interesting thing is I feel like there are phases of, of business. So I feel like, you know, that there's like a product development phase where you're really focused on just developing a product at all costs, you know, make sure you get a product to market um, that you think is going to resonate. Then there's like a kind of how do you build a brand around the product and how do you engage your consumers and there's also something about just, you know, how do you get distribution? You know, how do you, the actual commercial element, you know, making distribution agreements, export agreements, appointing agents um, to help you to get your product onto shelves in different locations. And, you know, all of those things, all of those elements require cash, you know, and I think that thing of cash flow, cash is king, you know, and that planning, you know, I know I said I started out without a plan, um, you know, necessarily, but as I learned about what things would cost and, and how, you know, how much it would cost to execute, you know, we had to then start doing really quite detailed budgeting, you know, quite detailed and structured costing to ensure that, you know, we can meet our obligations, that we can pay for the production run. Because, you know, when you start, you pay everything up front, right? And so, you know, it, it's how do you ensure that you've got enough cash to keep on getting to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage? Um, and yeah, just, you know, be very, um, I would say, um, yeah, be, get, get tough on, on protecting your cash, right? Because people will take a long time to pay you, you know, so you've got to get a bit tough. You've got to chase people. You've got to push people to pay, but also things you know that you can afford to delay paying. Don't over delay paying people like HMRC or, you know, people like that, you know, who, who, will, who will send you those, those strongly worded letters, you know, try and pay those people. But also make sure that, you know, where you can try and, um, you know, protect your cash flow. Because for me, my major thing is, can I make sure that my team, my team are paid at the end of every month? Can I make sure that the lights stay on in the office? You know, once I've, you know, once I've covered those two and I know that the, my people and, and the, the infrastructure is safe, then I'll make sure, you know, then I can prioritize the next things after that. And I always prioritize paying smaller suppliers um, freelancers, people like that, who I know are in the same boat, who just, you know, they're, they're in, you know, I guess as a freelancer, you're, you're more or less in startup mode um, constantly. So, you know, you need cash on time. And so we always prioritize paying people like that as well. Okay. So I think that's a really useful tip. And ov overall, this half of this episode, I think there's some nuanced gems in here. And I just want to run through them before we go towards the final part of the episode. And 
when it comes to onboarding people, I think the key thing to realize is whether someone is highly skilled, new to new to the world of work, you need to have a very, very specific job you need them to do and make sure it's measurable and consistent because the hardest thing is to be managed by someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Like we've all had managers or been reporting into people who felt like they were making it up as they were going along and that made it harder for us to actually deliver on our job. We every day moving with uncertainty. The other thing to bear in mind is that ultimately, when it comes to a, a building out a drinks brand, perception can be key. Focusing on the quality of your product and the way it looks are essentially the two drivers of your ability to, to, to grow revenue, increase awareness, get customers involved. Because again, I could have the tastiest drink in the world. If it looks horrible when I hand it over to you, you're less inclined to drink it. What ways can you mitigate that? Do you have a colored can or a colored bottle? Do you actually tweak the formulation so it doesn't look a certain way? Do you make, are you keen on making the initial taste last all the way through? Because sometimes it can taste great when you start and there's a weird aftertaste or you could start drinking it and halfway through, it's like, I don't want to drink this anymore. Something's a bit off. All of these are things that you can really work on yourself to make sure that the customer experience, which is all this is about, is the one you want to put out there because we think of customers differently while we're making our products. We think everyone becomes like us. How is this person going to receive this drink from the second they see it? does the quality match from the very beginning because you could have an incredible looking can but the drink tastes nasty or you could have a horrible looking can and the drink tastes amazing and the outcome is the same no one is buying and lastly when it comes to your cash flow on a on a cash intensive business like philip didn't mince any words when he spent he spent twenty five thousand pounds in his first year and it's a cash intensive business. You need to be able to hold on to the money in your business and prioritize who gets paid, aka your staff and the government and anyone else who gets who you are working with. You can start to negotiate terms because a lot of businesses in this space, especially in the manufacturing space, they have net 30, net 90 day terms, which means they're not going to pay you for three months after they've 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 done sold what you gave them but in the contract it says three months until we get some money so i hope you've really really got some gems but in the final part of this episode we're going to wrap it up with a quick tip and the next steps and those are the things that we want you to take away from this episode when it comes to having a food and drinks brand but also scaling it and going to supermarkets or selling direct to your consumers online so stay tuned and we'll see you after the break you may not know this but we have a patreon page Patreon is a platform that makes it super easy for people to support creators. Here at Black Millennial Money, our mission is to reach millions of people around the world with life-changing financial information, and you can be part of that. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Black Millennial Money or click the link in the description to sign up and start supporting us today. We are back and we're still talking about making money in this episode and we're talking about food and drinks businesses, how you can start off from nothing and end up selling 200,000 cans just like our guest Philip did today with his brand Food Vitamin Energy. Philip, you've got a quick tip for us and for those of you who are unfamiliar with the quick tips, these are the types of nuggets that you only get once you're talking to someone who's been there and done it. So if your pen and paper isn't out, now is the time. Philip, what is the quick tip for this week? So... Quick tip is you have a price in your head that you think this product is worth this price, right? And this is what you're going to sell it to different partners, whether it be retail partners, whether it be distributors, you're going to sell to them for that price. 
And actually your price may not always match the price that these people are willing to pay, right? Because they will have margins, they will have um, structures in terms of how, you know, how many layers of margin, because sometimes you have a distributor who will distribute your product. That means they will have an infrastructure, which would be normally warehouses, vans that will go out and deliver your product. They take a margin for that, could be 25%. Then they will then send these products to an end retailer. That retailer then needs their own margin on top because they're going to stick these products on their shelf. And then they need a margin to take off your product to cover their own overheads. So they might say take another 30, sometimes up to 40%. Um, sometimes if you're dealing with universities and contract caterers, there's even the head office that wants to take another margin somewhere else. So point being, you have to, um, for me and, and what I've learned is you have to try to make sure there's an incentive for everybody to work with you. And so if that means that, you know, you have to reduce the price you sell to them so that it works for them, it's better for the product to work and for you to have earned or gained a longer term partner than for you to sell at a price that's unrealistic and then eventually they have to mark up the product so much that it's, un, you know, it, it's unreasonable for the end user because ultimately the customer still has to pick up that product, which now includes VAT and you know, be happy with that final price. So that, that's my tip. Make sure that you understand margin structures and that you've costed that into your own model. And perhaps if things are not working, then you need to also really look at your own cost of goods and look at how you can drive that down. Okay. And again, I think that's a really, really solid tip. The understanding that pricing is always fluid because ultimately, if you look at something in the shop, how many different people get paid from that product being in that shop will, will show you ultimately what your cost price needs to be and what your what your margin needs to be and also what kind of scale you need to be to be profitable. Because again, using a Red Bull example, they did 8 billion cans in 2019. A bunch of people made money from that. Red Bull makes money because lots of people are selling it. The same with food. Food makes money when lots of people sell and lots of people are buying their product. To, to, to say that you sold 200,000 units doesn't mean you walked out with 20 million pounds. <laughs> Ultimately, that could, 200,000 units could turn into something like 50 grand, 250,000 pounds worth of revenue. That's less than one pound a can. But, that's what you need to bear in mind when it comes to selling your product because you will end up pricing yourself out of the market for your customers because none of us want to pay more for anything not like literally none of us want to pay more for anything so that's the thing to bear in mind you are your customer and the customers are real people when it comes time to buying the product that's two pound 85 versus the one that's two pound 35 most people are not going to pay the extra 50p and that could be the difference maker between your business scaling and not scaling. So time for the next steps. And these are the three things everyone listening right now should do to successfully launch their food and drinks brand. Philip, over to you to drop these next steps on the people. Fantastic. Number one, I would say, um, just like with the example of the Apple, write down your idea, get some, some level of visuals, start getting feedback straight away. You know, don't wait, um, start getting feedback. If it's a product you wanna try and do some home development, um, get some, you know, get some ingredients, 
get a blender, try some flavors, mix them up and try, you know, just get people to try your thing. So for me, idea on paper, get feedback. And if it's a, a, a you know, something to do with, um, you know, the physical development, even get people to taste that. Number two, <laughs> um, mock-ups, get mock-ups done. So make sure that, um, you know, you've got a visible representation of your brand. Um, we would do things like just go and get the flavor, sorry, the, um, the design houses to put together something that we could show people, you know, that we could say, hey, this is our product. It was not a manufactured product, but it really helped people to understand where we were going and to tell the story. Um, so get mock-ups done, um, get more feedback. And then number three, um, once you eventually get to the stage of perhaps having a final finished product or manufactured product, get feedback, but also learn to listen to feedback because it's one thing to, to have customers tell you what they think. Um, and it's another thing for you to actually listen. And I think um, sometimes, um, you know, for me, what I've, I've really understood is, you know, and, and I guess just on a biological level, right, we've got two ears and one mouth, you know, so our, our, our instinct often is as soon as someone tells you something negative about your brand or about your product, you want to instinctively defend or, you know, say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's good because of this or you're wrong because of this. But actually, you have to learn to listen and to try and take on board messages and particularly when you're getting lots of feedback from lots of different touch points, um, how do you listen and learn and constantly improve and iterate? You know, and we've been through this. We've had, this is our third version of our product we're on right now. And we've incorporated so much feedback into this one, you know, into this final product now. Um, and the other thing I would say is that even when sometimes that feedback is so negative and, and you know, you get people who are, who are just having a bad day or, they might even be internet trolls. You know, you don't know who they are. They're just bad. Sometimes they're just like ready to give you really negative feedback. Even listen to that too, because even within that, there may well be something that you can take that ultimately will help you to improve your product and, you know, make the product better and more successful in the market. Awesome. And those are like, those are three really, really fundamental tips to product development of any kind. So even if you're listening to this, and you're not trying to get into the food and drinks business, I think this is a nice process for you to follow. So with your initial idea, write it down. And then start talking to people about it. Just write it down. You don't need to make it beautiful. Just explain the concept. See what people think. Does that sound remotely interesting? Does that, does that sound like something that people would be curious to hear more about? In that, it would be writing down the thing. How do you market it and who is it for? That's it. That's all you need. Those are the three things you need to figure out. And then you can start getting mock-ups done, whether those are visual mock-ups or maybe even physical mock-ups. The point of this is that you're doing something that's not scalable, that may be the most expensive way of doing it. Like those initial cans of food that, that Philip made, he, they could have cost him £20 a can. But the point was, is that ultimately you've got this thing now that you can share with a few people to get some feedback on. And that's ultimate, that's what matters is about getting the feedback. And once you've done that, you have to accept all of the feedback, listen in actively, hear what people are really saying, understand what people are really saying. Don't, don't take it personally. 
this is how people feel. And ultimately, from that point is when you start building a product. I've got a bonus step for everyone on this because I found this incredibly useful in the product that I'm developing. I'm, I'm developing a game and I'll let you guys know how it goes. But at this stage, I look at two-star and four-star reviews. I ignore all other reviews. Why? Because people who give five stars are too happy. I may have even been paid to give me five stars. People who give one stars are too angry and might be hating. They could be from a completely different company that's just trying to ruin this person's reviews. Two-star reviews are people who are annoyed, but still in a reasonable frame of mind to, to want to write a detail. And you find that two-star reviews are, always, are usually longer than one-star reviews. Three-star reviews, no value there because they're in the middle, they're on the fence. They don't like it enough. They don't hate it enough. Four-star reviews are, again, where some gems are because this person likes the product enough to say, you know what, I'm going to give you four stars. And often that person's about to say, this is the thing that would make it five stars. So two and four-star reviews are ultimately the place where you get the most value from. And if you're looking for product opportunities and you think, oh, this has already been done, this is already, like, there's, there's tons of people already doing this, Go to the reviews, look at the two and four star reviews and they will show you what is wrong with this product. They will show you your room for opportunity and how you can improve it for a group of people who care enough about this thing to number one, write a review and number two, give a considered review because the difference between one and two is anger. The difference between four and five is euphoria. Two and four people are still measured. They're still balancing their emotions and they're still being rational. Those are the people you really, really want to listen to. So, Philip, it's been a great episode and I really, really hope that people have been listening intently to this. It has been a pen and paper episode and I know that people are going to want to reach out to you about your product, about your business and also try some of that some of that 100% all-natural energy drink we got going. How can people get in touch with you? Brilliant. You can get in touch with us at... In, on Instagram, we are at Drink Food, and obviously D R I N K with F U D. Um, drink Food um, on Insta, Drink Food on Twitter, Drink Food on Facebook. Um, our website, drinkfood.com, <laughs> where you can see we went all in, drinkfood.com. And um, LinkedIn, Philip Uday. Feel free to connect. I'm always willing to, to, to have conversations with with founders and um, you know pay back also some of the people who you know I, I guess what do you call it paying it forward I guess you know because you know one thing that I've consistently done is reach out to people who have been in the industry um, for many years whether it's people like Adam Ballen who's the founder of one of the founders of Innocent who you know has sat with me for for an hour talked about the brand or you know the founder of Huel or, you know, people like this have been really generous with their time. So I, I'm always really, really, um, always ready to, to have a chat, particularly at lunchtimes. I'm cool for people to, to get in touch and we can talk about your brand. Amazing. And as always, the links to everything that Philip just said to so the website, the Instagram, the Twitter will all be in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, just scroll down. If you're watching this on YouTube, scroll down. It's all in there. If you want to connect to Black Millennial Money, head over to the website and reach out to us. Press the contact link and send us your dilemma, send us your scenarios, send us your questions, suggest guests, anything that you want to be covered on Black Millennial Money, we will do the work to get that done for you. You can connect with us on Instagram at BMM Global, on Twitter at 
BMM Global Pod. And if you're yet to subscribe to our YouTube channel, just search Black Millennial Money on YouTube and we will come right up. Like, subscribe and share this video with some friends. Also, the Patreon link is blackmillennialmoney.com forward slash Patreon. Head over to Patreon and start supporting us today. You can be part of the movement. You can have your name on screen at the beginning of videos like all of the lovely people at the start of this video. So next week, we're going to be back with another episode of Black Millennial Money where we're either talking about how to make, keep, invest, or spend your money the right way. Look forward to seeing you then. This is Black Millennial Money. 